Our Father, we acknowledge that each day we experience the blessings of God. Sometimes they seem to be a little bit hidden from our view, but we recognize as the situation develops that you are always there. Sometimes the difficulties seem almost insurmountable that we may face at a given moment, but at the same moment we need to recognize and we, I pray that we will always recognize that you are present with us in those difficulties. Even as we look at the story of Joseph and, and we recognize in his life that as he was in prison, certainly he didn't have the word of God in his hands to read, to comfort him. He didn't have a preacher to come and speak to him. His faith was solely based on what he knew and what you were doing for him at the moment. And Father, I pray that with these other blessings in our hands, these opportunities to sit in your house and hear your word, to study your word on our own, that we will be even as faithful as Joseph. Lord, I pray for your special blessing upon our hour together here, that you will grant understanding of these scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read, first of all, from the end of Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 53. Genesis 41, 53. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the earth, over the, all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. As we have looked at this 41st chapter of Genesis and we have seen the fulfillment of the dream, the dreams actually that Pharaoh had concerning the coming famine uh, following a seven-year period of, of abundance, I think what we see, one of the lessons that we should derive from all of this certainly is the lesson that God is sovereign in all of the affairs of this world. God is not looking down and surprised about anything that takes place. He knows long ahead of time what is going to take place, and he is ultimately responsible for the direction in which history goes. One of the primary doctrines of the Calvinist persuasion has been the sovereignty of God. That can be, of course, pushed to the point where we almost become fatalistic, which I don't think we ought to do, but sovereignty of God is clearly a teaching of Scripture. And we need to keep that in our minds all the time. That God is sovereign not only in the affairs of our individual lives, but in the affairs of this world. Not just religious affairs, quote unquote, but all of the affairs of this life. And thus, I think what we can derive further from this Therefore, is that our prayers, which we're commanded to pray for our nation, do make a difference because God is in charge and God can change the direction of a nation. And if God's people will pray, God chooses that route 
to energize his will. I think it's equally important that we not only recognize how important our prayers are, but our faithful service to God. And as we look at the life of Joseph, one of the things we find clearly in his life is faithfulness to God's plan, to whatever God has called him to do. Even though it might seem very, very difficult to see where God is directing him at a particular moment in time, when everything seems to have turned against him as he's in prison, for example, and yet he remained faithful in his service and in his faith to God. As I was thinking about this this morning, a passage came to me. It's not on your outline. I'll, I'll just turn to it, and you may too if you wish, in uh, the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4. Esther 4, reading at verse 16. Now, we're all pretty familiar, I think, with Esther having been chosen by the king, probably Xerxes I, to be his new queen after a sort of a beauty contest was held. This is after he had, had failed on his, his Greek mission, his attempt to conquer Greece, and he came back in a very disgruntled mood. And as a result, they thought, let's help the king feel better. We'll have a, I mean, a, well, you could call it an international beauty contest and let him pick a queen from that. And, and as we know, Esther was chosen. And as you read through the book of Esther, you have to know that Esther was not a pig and a poke choice. It wasn't an accidental choice. God was sovereign in that situation because God knew what was coming. God knew what he was going to allow to take place, and therefore God had his per person in the right place at the right time, just, just as in the case with Joseph. Mordecai, her uncle, of course, uh, understands the situation as it's developing. Haman, who hates the Jews because he hated Mordecai, because Mordecai wouldn't bow down before him, uh, has made it so that uh, he got the king's permission to destroy all of the Jews within the Persian Empire. Verse 13, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, the, these are the intermediaries, they're running back and forth between Esther in the palace and Mordecai outside of the palace, to reply to Mordecai, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, three days, night or day, and I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She was committing to, committed to doing what was right in the situation. And, and even though we know from the book of Esther, some people make a big point about the fact that God's name doesn't show up in here, but the hand of God is all through the book. Uh, this is a woman who was dedicated to do what she felt under God was right. In many ways, she was very, very similar to Joseph. Raised from, in effect, a nobody to a powerful person in the land for such a time as this. And so it was in the case of Joseph, raised up at the hour that God had selected to be his instrument of salvation for the people. Can we imagine how many lives would have been destroyed 
if Joseph had been unfaithful to the duty to which he had been called? What if Joseph, when he was in prison, decided, God has let me rot in this place. I don't want anything to do with God anymore. And he had not become a man who was ready for the moment that God would elevate him. Or we could even look at the situation. Had he been raised to power as we've seen it, and then he thought, wow, now I'm in this position of power. I'm going to enjoy this position of power. And I'm going to revel in my wealth and in my power and in my palace and my fame and everything else. And I'm just going to give underlings the job that I've been assigned to do and send them out across the land to collect the grain and do this. And you know how underlings do a job often, particularly if they're government uh, people. <laughs> they don't always do the job the best it can be done. But Joseph didn't do that because he was serving someone greater than the Pharaoh. He was serving the sovereign God. And he knew God expected him to do the task and to do it right, to be on the scene and at the spot where the program needed to be established and made to function. Joseph had proved himself faithful, as we have already seen, in the small things with Potiphar and even when he was in prison. And so he had been prepared to do the great task which stood before him, which included the salvation physically of hundreds of thousands, possibly even millions of Egyptians, and the physical salvation also, of course, of his own family, which would lead ultimately to the spiritual salvation also of all mankind was a great task. We could argue, of course, that had Joseph not done the job, as we read here in, in, uh, in the book of Esther, Mordecai said that if you don't do the job, someone else will be raised up to do the job because the Jews will be saved. And we could argue God was going to save Jacob and his family because he had chosen them to be the transmitters of the... Uh, of the uh, line of the Savior, of Messiah. And therefore, God would have chosen someone else. And, and certainly, that probably would be true. But that would have not helped Joseph any. In fact, that would have been devastating for Joseph had he failed and not been the one that God intended him to be. It would have been a calamity for him. And for us, it would have denied us this, this wonderful example of faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Someone who stayed true to God in a situation which was about as bad as the situation can get for a human being. You know, to be thrown in prison in a foreign country is a pretty bad situation. And yet he was faithful to God in it all. I think it's important for us to recognize, as the scripture teaches us, that certain things are inevitable. God has ordained them to be. But that does not absolve us individually of disobedience. If we do not follow through to become what God has chosen for us to be, that's to our uh, chagrin and shame. A couple of familiar passages here in Matthew, I think, underscore this point. In Matthew 18, verse 7, we see this, that certain things are inevitable. But that does not mean that those who fail are absolved. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. 
but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And then more point, pointedly in Matthew 26, verse 24, the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. We could argue that God had ordained a Judas, but Judas was responsible for being Judas. And because God had looked down through the corridors of history and known there would be a man who would become Judas in this situation, did not mean that Judas could say, but it wasn't my fault because God had ordained it to be. And so as we look at the life of Joseph, had Joseph failed at this point, he could not have said, well, it wasn't my fault because God put me in prison. What else could I do? And so as we translate that into our lives today, we have no excuse if we choose not to obey God because it is a choice. No matter how difficult the situation is, it is a choice. We choose to obey or we choose to disobey. In every situation, as we, I think, well know, sin, we don't stumble into sin, even though some people use that terminology. Sin is a choice. I choose to disobey. I choose to do what I know is not right. It's not an accident. Now, the temptation may not have been foreseen. I may not have chosen to have the temptation. But when I yield, I choose. I, I, I just am constantly reminded as we read through this that Joseph simply didn't have all the advantages we have. I mean, he didn't have this book. What would we as Christians do without this book? And, and he didn't have preachers to, to listen to on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. He simply had the faith that God had put in him from the time that he had lived with his father Jacob. And God kept that faith solid. And as a result, J Joseph, Joseph was a faithful man. In, in this passage that we read this morning, we see that Joseph sold the grain to the Egyptians. And some might question whether that was the right thing to do. Should you sell the grain to the Egyptians? After all, they grew it in the first place. Why don't you just give it to them? Well, I think there are, and, and I think I've listed them there on the outline, at least three reasons why the grain was not given to the people but sold to the people. First is the same reason that coal porters, if you will, people who, who have Bibles and uh, New Testaments and little books, who travel around the world and, and give these or sell these to, to people. The reason they, they sell them is the same reason that we can look at here in, in number one. To require pay, payment is to reduce waste. People are less likely to waste something that they have paid for than if you just give it to them. That's human nature. Secondly, to have given it away would have rewarded laziness. Those people who didn't heed the word that had come down and saved some of their own grain and saved some of their own money. We talked about this last week. You know, God doesn't want us to lay up treasures here on earth where moth and rust corrupts. But the scripture does teach us that we are to put aside something for the 
events which might take place soon for which we might need a little something. You know, go to the ant, you sluggard, and see that the ant collects during the season when it's available and stores it up for the season when it's not available. There's a balance we have to have there. Those who pay no heed for tomorrow, sometimes claiming that they pay no heed because God will take care of tomorrow, are doing it because they're really lazy. And it's not faith. Those who didn't take any precautions for the morrow, of course, were in greater need sooner. Now, there always are those uh, who, for one reason or another, aren't prepared for tomorrow. That doesn't mean we just discount them. And certainly, I don't think Joseph did in this situation. I think those who had no money also received grain. But in exchange, they had to work for the government. Not a bad idea. Uh, well, I don't know if it's good to work for the government, but I mean, at least work. And, and I think this happened. And of course, we have many examples in history of large work, large chain gangs, if you will. A chain gang, that's a kind of a pejorative idea. But the um, you know, work crews that work for the Egyptians to build various structures. A third factor, I think, would be whether or not the government paid for this grain to begin with, whether it was just considered to be part of the taxes or if the government actually paid the people, the scripture isn't real clear about that. Whichever was the case, the government had to build the storehouses. The government had to establish the distribution system. The government had to transport the grain. The government had to guard the grain. So there was a great cost outlay for the government to carry on this program. And therefore, money should be paid in to recompense the government for its great outlay. Plus, if, now remember, Egypt was an agricultural economy. They didn't have all the manufacturing that we have. All their manufacturing was basically handicraft, mostly. We, we know stories, uh, accounts of, for example, chariots later being manufactured in Egypt and sold elsewhere, but not, not yet. It's too early for chariots at this time in Egyptian history at least being manufactured. They're just been recently introduced uh, in, in Egypt. When an agricultural economy collapses, what happens to the tax base of the government? It collapses also. And therefore, for seven years of famine, the government would have a steadily diminishing tax base. And as a result, if the government continued to carry out this program with no income, the government would go bankrupt. Thus, money was collected from the people for this grain. I think one of the amazing things about this is that how much grain was collected from the abundant years? Well, we read in, when we went through the earlier part of the book, uh, of the chapter, that 20% of the grain was collected. For seven years, 20% was collected, which means that for seven years of famine, you have those seven 20%. Which means, if, if, you were, if you stripped it all down to the basic uh, foundation, you could say that the people could actually live adequately on 20% of what they grew during the abundant years. Now, of course, there are a few other things you have to throw into that computation. One is the fact that certainly, the, during the years of abundance, large amounts of grain were exported out of Egypt. As I mentioned to you before, Egypt has historically been a granary for the, for the ancient Near East. Egypt was the granary for Rome, and that's why, why Rome wasn't willing to let, for example, uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra just 
strip away that part of the empire and walk away with it. And, and uh, um, Octavian became Augustus Caesar, warred with them to keep the empire together because they couldn't afford to lose Egypt as a great granary. And, and so probably large amounts of grain left Egypt during the years of abundance. And then as you come to the years of famine, some grain probably was grown. Not much, but a little. And some of the people did store up grain on their own, enough to keep them from having to dip into the government supply as early, maybe even enough to supply themselves for a year. Who knows? So what, as a result of this whole thing, Egypt had enough in collecting only 20% per year for seven years to carry Egypt through seven years of famine and to sell to outsiders. Joseph, of course, was the one who planned this with God's direction and to make it work. One of the interesting things about Egypt is that long-term preservation of grain is not difficult in a country like Egypt because it's very, very dry. And we've talked about this before. Uh, you know Egypt is famous for its mummies where they put a body through this long uh, process of, of weeks and weeks and uh, they preserve the body. Well, they have actually discovered bodies that hadn't gone through that process, but had been just buried in the sand, and, and they dig them up thousands of years later. They're, they're pretty dehydrated, but nevertheless, there it is. It's, it's been totally dried out in the sand and preserved. When they did the excavations years ago on Masada, Masada is that plateau on the uh, southwest edge of the Sea of, uh, of the Dead Sea, where the Jews made their last stand in the war back in the first century, the Jewish war, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And what's interesting is that when they did archaeological excavation up there, they found figs and grain and other things that had been put away in storage basins by those Jews in the first century that was still edible when the archaeologists uncovered it. Now, it's pretty dry, but nevertheless still edible. It hadn't spoiled. And that's because of the tremendous ability of dry air to preserve and to not, of course, foment decay. Allowing one of Jacob's sons to be sold into Egypt as a slave was God's way of providing for the needs of Jacob and his family. That having one of your sons sold in slavery in another country, that this would be a blessing? Doesn't sound like much of a blessing. It sure was no blessing to Jacob. Of course, Jacob thought his son was dead. But this is a way, you know, God works in ways that are mysterious to us. God takes what appears to be tragedy and turns it into something glorious and wonderful. Everything God touches. He touches for redemptive purposes. That's what God's all about. And that's what he was doing here. God supplies the needs of his people. That's a clear teaching of scripture. From Genesis through Revelation, God supplies the needs of his people. That's one reason why, as you know, most many of us sat through that Larry Burkett uh, uh, video a few Sunday nights back whatever happened to the American dream, in which he's talking about going beyond his, uh, what was that, the coming economic earthquake book, 
up kind of an updating of that where he, you know, really feels the American economy is going to go down the tubes before the end of this decade. And we could look at that and we could quake and we could tremble and we could worry and wonder, but we don't have to do that. Now, we don't need to be foolish. We don't do like uh, the followers of, followers of William Miller did in the 1840s and climb to the top of a hill, give everything away, climb to the top of a hill in white robes and wait for Christ to return. We don't do that either. We have to stay in the place where God would have us to be, of trust. Be anxious for what? Nothing, the scripture says. God always supplies the needs of his faithful people. But he doesn't always do it in the same way, and he doesn't always do it in the way that we expect. Oh, rich cousin Johnny, he's going to help me out. Well, rich cousin Johnny might just turn out to be a very greedy man who isn't going to give you a red cent. And it may be poor little uh, Sister Sally over here who helps you through your time, or whatever it is God does. I mean, he fed Elijah with, with ravens. That's pretty extreme. Probably won't do that for most of us, but whatever way God uses, he will meet our needs. One of the ways, though, he does choose to help his people is by causing his people to be good stewards of what they have. We are, as God's people, to use our God-given resources wisely and not wastefully. And we are to share what we have with those who have a need. That's God's way of supplying the need for some people. I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment. Often preachers turn to this passage and they particularly like to read the seventh verse to try to make us convinced of the fact that we're supposed to give liberally in the offering. But this passage goes far beyond that. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for what? Every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and gave to the poor. His righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now back in, that, in the first verse of this one, that is verse 6, Paul uses an agricultural truth here to teach a spiritual reality. 
the farmer who goes out and puts just a few seeds in the ground is only going to get a small harvest. And, and, and so it is true for us, not just in money ways, but in all areas of our life. If we plant sparingly, we do very little for God, we help others very little, then the, the harvest to us is going to be very small. And we're going to go through life feeling rather uh, maybe useless or as if people don't appreciate us as much as they should. In verse 8, to me, I think it's really, really important, this, this one verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, obviously this can, verse can be interpreted in other than monetary ways, but a monetary interpretation is also one of the interpretations. If God gives us an abundance, the purpose of that abundance is not so that we can go out and buy a bigger home, especially if we don't need a bigger home, or to buy a fancier car, or, or to, to buy you know, a, a home in the mountains and a home in the coast and a home in the city and, and a, a big old boat in this lake and that lake and the other lake. I mean, this is not the purpose of that abundance. Now, God does not want us to not have those things which we may find a blessing for us and may use to bless other people. But the attitude behind it's the whole point here. What is the purpose of the abundance that God gives us? The, the purpose is for every good deed. Now God knows in our hearts what we're thinking. If we're saying, yeah, I'm going to buy, uh, please, I'm not attacking anybody. I don't know a single person in this room who has a houseboat. I'm just using it as an example. <laughs> so I, I'm not attacking anybody here. There, there are very good reasons, and I think there are people who have them and use them wonderfully, and I, I'm sure that's true in this church. But there, are, there may be that person who says, I'm going to buy the houseboat because I'm going to use it to take people out in youth groups and everything else, and that's the excuse, but they never do it. You know? God knows the heart, whereas there's the other person who says, I'm going to buy this and I'm going to use it, and they do. And God knows the heart. And, and for the one, it's wrong. For the other, it's right. You know, we just can't categorically say you can't have a big house or a fancy car or anything else. It depends on the attitude of the heart. And, and that's what's being illustrated or, or described here. You'll notice that the passage says things like, the harvest of your righteousness, the ministry of this service, the, the proof uh, that you give here is, of your obedience is, is not only the confession of the gospel of Christ, but the liberality of your contribution. In other words, our word and our action must go together. Our proclaimed faith and, and our action then must support our proclaimed faith even as it touches financial matters as other matters too. Notice as you go through this whole uh, passage, we're talking about a close intertwining between the material and the spiritual. This whole idea of separating life into the, uh, the sacred and the profane, the holy and, and the material, is not God's way of dividing things. It's not biblical. Jesus Christ ministered to the body and to the spirit. And he didn't make a separation between the two. And as you read through this passage, you find a close intertwining of the material and the spiritual. They're related together. 
And what we do with what we have is going to illustrate where our heart is. If our heart is on setting up our treasures on this earth and doing everything for ourselves, it will clearly be obvious in what we do with what we have. And God doesn't just go around saying, well, that person is using it wrong and, and take it all away. Sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. He just lets us go on our merry way many times. But the idea is, of course, that if we're open to the word of God, he will drive the point home when it's necessary. And we will become the people that he wants us to be. God blesses us so that we will turn around and bless others. Now, that doesn't just reply to material things, but it does not exclude material things. It includes that, I think, also, as we clearly, clearly see in this passage. Let's look at uh, the 42nd chapter of Genesis. This is a chapter that many may have been looking forward to. We all look forward, I think, to the drama of Joseph encountering his brothers 20 years after they had sold him into Egypt. It's an exciting story. Verses 1 through 7. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us that, from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those also, among those who were coming. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. I think a lot of us would like to vicariously be Joseph for a while <laughs> and uh, give these guys a bad time. Joseph had been presumed dead by his father for over 20 years. Jacob has no inkling at all of what's going to transpire. But as we go through this passage, this 42nd chapter, we will discover that although Jacob had presumed Joseph to be dead for 20 years, he had not forgotten his son Joseph. Now news of the abundance of grain in Egypt undoubtedly reached Jacob's family via the many travelers and caravans that passed through Canaan. I, I think it's very possible that long before this moment, Jacob and his family knew that there was grain down there because travelers going in and out of Egypt said, boy, you know, these Egyptians down there, they're building storehouses everywhere and they're stacking grain away because the pharaohs had a dream that there's going to be a great famine. Well, the Egyptians couldn't hide it. How do you hide building big storehouses and all this activity going on, you know? So they've decided rather than try to hide it, let's just blow it all out there so that foreigners coming in will take heed and maybe they will grow and supply, uh, try to store up enough for themselves so that they won't be coming to us in great quantities to dip into our grain supply. So it's very possible Jacob knew about this situation long before now. 
but it never really mattered much before now because at this moment their food supply was running low. Jacob was, of course, the patriarch of the clan. His sons are all adults. Uh, Benjamin is also an adult. Uh, he is somewhere in his 20s. They all have their individual families, at least most of the brothers do, whether Benjamin did or not, it's not quite clear here, but all of the others certainly had their own families. And so Jacob was probably thinking to himself, when are these guys going to get on the stick and go down to Egypt? I mean, they know there's grain down there, and what are they waiting for? They see our supplies getting smaller and smaller. And I don't think he wanted to take over and just tell them what to do. He expected them as adults to do what they were supposed to do. Finally, he got tired of them, as he says, staring at one another, <laughs> you know, sucking your thumb or whatever you want to use as the uh, term here. But why are you guys staring at each other? Why don't you get on the stick and go down to Egypt and buy grain so that the family might survive? Now, there is no doubt that these men had long ago thought of this possibility. But they were probably standing around staring at each other because none could believe this was happening to them. <laughs> that they might have to go down to the land into which they had sold their brother. You know, you live forever with a guilty conscience if you, if you don't go to God and, and to whomever you've offended to seek forgiveness. You go around with this cloud hanging over your head all the time and every time something happens, you know, it's like a, a shock up and down your spine because it relates to what you haven't dealt with. And so it was with these ten brothers. For 20 years, they had been living with the guilt of having sold their brother into Egypt. And certainly it was brought to their mind every time they saw their father. Maybe for that reason, they didn't see their father too much if they could avoid it because they had told him a lie and they had seen what it had done to him. And now, the thought that they might have to go down into Egypt was the last thought they hoped to ever have. And the idea is, of course, that it would just rub raw their unhealed consciences for what they had done. I think that they couldn't help but believe God was going to fix them for this. You know, God was going to get them. This was God's idea. You know, we can either praise God or we can blame God. Scripture clearly teaches us to praise God in every situation. To blame God is foolish. You know, sometimes if we place blame on God, it's because we don't understand the nature of God. God is incapable of evil. He cannot do evil because his attributes do not include evil. You know, Allah, I hope you don't know Allah, but you know about Allah. You can't know Allah, Allah because Allah doesn't exist. But Allah, the, the God that the uh, Islamic uh, people worship, is capable of all things, according to their theology, which means he's also capable of evil. And I think we can say amen to that. But our God is not capable of evil. And so there is no purpose in blaming God for any situation because he cannot do bad things as we think of bad things. Now, he can allow evil. 
as we see clearly from the story of Job. He will allow it, but the perpetrator is the enemy. So I think these brothers couldn't help but feel that God was going to punish them for the evil that they had done by sending them down there. And I think they had the stabbing thought, what if we run into Joseph? Now, I, I think they tried to get rid of that thought by saying, you know, well, 20 years, he's been a slave. He, you know, he could very well be dead. I don't know if that was a very satisfying thought, but anyway, they could have that thought. Or, or they could say, Egypt's a very large land. It extends for hundreds of miles north and south. And we're just going to one little point in that land to buy some grain. Chances of us running into Joseph are very, very teeny. Like the needle in the haystack. Well, their rationalizations didn't make it all better. <laughs> they stood speechless, each hoping the other would come up with a better alternative than going down to Egypt to get grain. But they all knew there was no other alternative. And Jacob became irritated with this seeming indecision on the part of his sons. And he used his authority as patriarch of the clan. Now, from this, I don't think we should interpret that Jacob went around bossing his sons around all the time. I mean, they're adults. They run their own household. He wasn't going around to every house telling them what to do every day. But at this point, he finally pulled rank. I'm the patriarch of this clan. You guys don't seem to know what you're doing. You can't get your act together, so I am ordering you to go down to Egypt and get some grain. It's obvious what we must do. And so they do. But he will not send Benjamin. He's been bereaved of Rachel. He's been bereaved of Joseph, those that he loved the most. He is not going to be bereaved of Benjamin. Because as the scripture said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. Why does Jacob have that feeling? Because of what happened to Rachel? Because of what happened to Joseph? Certainly. Is it an expression of faith in God? Not really. It seems as we study this passage that Joseph has gone beyond his father in his walk with God, in becoming a man of faith. We could maybe argue, but Joseph had nothing to lose. What do you have to lose in prison? Trust God. But if you've got thousands of sheep and goats and you've got all these kids and grandkids, you've got so much to lose, you've got to be more careful. You can't just trust God with everything. He was taking no chances with Benjamin. What lesson had he yet not learned? The lesson to not play favorites with your children. Those ten sons knew very well that Benjamin was the beloved one now. And they couldn't help but feel still class in the eyes of their father. But God will fix that. God will require Benjamin to go. Jacob will have to yield him up. If we hold too tightly to anything, God may put us in a place where we have to yield it up because he wants everything that we have and everything that we are to be his. The trip to Egypt was not easy. The road was well-traveled, but there was always danger. Always danger of roving bands, raiders, thieves, highwaymen, who had attacked individuals, attacked caravans. You know, the story, even though it was just a story of, of the person going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and being attacked along the way, was, was so poignant 
because the people knew this to be an everyday experience. It wasn't like, well, I never heard of anybody getting attacked going from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, what a silly story. No, it's because it happened all the time. It's like for us to go out and give a parable about getting in an accident on the freeway. <laughs> That's not too foreign to us. Hopefully it's fairly foreign to our own personal experience directly. But we read about it all the way, all the time, and certainly many of us, uh, probably all of us, have experienced something along that line directly. And so we have here Jacob sending all of his sons except Benjamin. Why? He could have just sent two of them, couldn't he? Said, you guys go down and the rest of us will kind of hang on to things here and we'll guard our goods here. You guys go down there. No, he sends all ten sons. And I think the reasons are at least three. First of all, that there is safety in numbers. Each of the ten took some of his male servants with him. So that we're talking about a party that may have numbered uh, half a hundred men armed. I mean, sometimes we don't really get a good picture of this. We just see kind of these guys running around in their, their tunics out there herding sheep with their little staff, and we don't recognize that these guys probably carried weapons. At least they had a dagger or a sword probably with which to defend themselves as they traveled. And so with 40 or 50 men going along, uh, a small group of raiders would think twice before they attacked. Secondly, each brother, I think, was responsible to get grain for his own family. You go down and get it for your own family, and you bring a little back for Jacob, too. And so the, all of the brothers were responsible for doing this. And then I think it's possible, the scripture doesn't say so, but it's very possible that the Egyptians required them to personally come if they wanted to get the grain. You can't just send your servant on down there. If you want it bad enough, you come and get it so that we know that you're a legitimate that you express a legitimate need here. Well, I think it was a solemn procession as those brothers gathered their servants and gathered their donkeys and got ready for their caravan to go off down to the land of Egypt. I don't think there was much joviality here. I don't think a single one of them looked forward to Egypt, grain or no grain. But they didn't go alone. This seems to be indicated in verse 5 where it says, So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. So there were many traveling from different directions, certainly, but at least in their direction also. Possibly they joined a greater caravan, and there was even more protection as they traveled the route. How did they go? Well, I'd be, by that I mean what route. We know they went by foot. I don't know if you still have your map, but, and I know this is pretty teeny, but uh, the, the Via Maris, it's called, the Way of the Sea, was the primary highway of this part of the Mediterranean world. Uh, it came down from Damascus. Uh, it curved over the top of the Sea of Galilee up here. It came from north and then moved over towards the south uh, west over the top of the Sea of Galilee. And then it came through the plain of Esdraelon, the valley of Megiddo, if you will. In fact, it, it, one of the ways it went was through the valley or, or the um, pass, which was guarded by the city of Megiddo. Uh, through over to the coast and then down the plains of the coast, the plain of Sharon, the, the plain of the Philistines, down through Gaza, down here, and then across the top of the Sinai, across the top of the Sinai Desert here and over into the delta of Egypt. So these brothers who were living in Hebron 
probably traveled the hill country route to Beersheba, down in the Negev, and then they would make a right turn, which would be over to the west, and they came almost due west across to hook into the Via Maris. And there, there they would be on the main highway, and then they would travel on over into Egypt. Now they would be traveling approximately 300 miles. From Hebron to Memphis was approximately 300 miles. It would take them about two weeks to make the journey. In Egypt, the grain distribution was rolling along very smoothly. Everybody knew his job. Joseph had set it up all well. So Joseph didn't have to be circuit riding all the time to make sure the program was going. So it seems that Joseph is now headquartered in Memphis and stays there much of the time. Certainly if there was a problem, he would go see about the problem. But here he was as overseer of the program in the capital. So I think that's the picture we have to have in our minds. These brothers can't just go to the nearest town in the Delta and say, give us some grain. They had to go all the way to the capital to get permission to buy the grain wherever they bought it. And apparently they got it right in Memphis. That's what the story seems to indicate. Apparently all foreigners had to do this if they wanted to buy grain. They had to get permission from Joseph. And I think the reasons were three. First of all, so that a surcharge could be attached to all sales to non-citizens of Egypt. They'd pay a little extra for the grain. Secondly, to determine the validity of the need. Are these people who really have a need? If so, we'll sell to them. And thirdly, to make sure there really weren't any spies. We read this story and we probably think, what are you talking about, Joseph? Spies? These, these hicks out of the desert, you expect them to be spies? What's a I mean, what's to spy on? Your secret defense plant over here? Well, to spy on the storage of the grain. To spy on the treasury where all this money is being kept. Remember, Egypt was vulnerable to attack from the outside. And raiding groups were always out there in the desert looking for an opportunity to come in. And maybe they were casing the place, if you will, and looking for an opportunity they could slip in one night as a, as a roving band of raiders and strike and gather the grain or the money for the grain that was stored in a particular place. Anyway, whatever the case, this was a possibility. And so Joseph was responsible for filtering all this personally. As the brothers were ushered before Joseph, what did they do? They did what they said they would never do. They fell on their faces before him, prostrated themselves face to the ground, before Joseph. Of course, they didn't know it was Joseph. What does that mean? It's a sign of submission. Joseph, we're told in the passage, recognized them immediately, but he put on a front. He acted as if he had no idea who they were, as if they were total strangers. And the scripture tells us he was harsh towards them. I don't think he normally was a harsh man. I think he had to put on an act. I don't think he liked it, but he put it on in order to provide for us this drama that we'll be looking at next week as we proceed into this next portion of the passage. <clears throat>